Welcome to The Map of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 24th episode, it's part one of a very special event. Over the next two weeks, I'm going to be talking to the Double Clicks. In case you didn't know, the Double Clicks are a nationally touring, billboard charting nerd band with a cello, a meowing cat keyboard, songs about dinosaurs, cats, Netflix, space, Dungeons and Dragons, and feelings. I featured their music on this very podcast and I've been a fan for quite a while. And I was very, very happy to have them on the show to help promote their new Kickstarter for their upcoming album. But more about that later. This week, I talked to Angela M. Weber about They Might Be Giants and American Girl Dolls. Along the way, we'll talk about how it's possible to have all your posters in your room be of people named John, how it's not possible to have a band full of Dans when your drummer's named Marty, and how even when you're picking your imaginary friend, you can still be eminently practical. We'll finish the show with a signature cocktail and tell you how you can become a guest on The Map of You. We join this conversation already in progress. I let things bother me that I shouldn't let bother me And I feel sorry like I should be stronger I know I shouldn't listen to the insults or the heckles But I listen and they all stick with me longer My friend Michael Bain told me this is because we're evolved to remember the things that endanger us. If I was an animal looking for food, I would always be vigilant for things that are dangerous. So if I'm in real life or reading the comments, I'll always remember those who cross the line. And not all the wonderful women and children who tell us we've helped them by speaking our minds. If it is negative, I'll memorize it fast Cause I am sensitive, not just a badass I am sensitive I am a badass I act like... Alright Angela, so for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Oh, thanks for asking. My name is Angela M. Weber. I'm in a band called The Double Clicks, and we sing songs about dinosaurs and feelings, previously heard on this very podcast. I'm also a podcaster. I have a show called Gosh Darn Fiasco, and I occasionally write essays and do comedy. And what makes me special is my unique and genius perspective on life, I think. <laughs> I have to confess, I mean, this this is something that I've been wanting to do for a very long time because I actually got to meet yourself and Aubrey when you came to Australia and I confess to you then that I've been a fan since what mid 2013 awesome because you both guested on a podcast that I listened to at the time was called NSFW but now it's you know changed into Night Attack oh yeah and you were part I think you were the first in their summer music series yeah because somebody canceled (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, and you played Clever Girl, and I was like, this is amazing. These people are amazing. And then years later, you came to Australia, and my friend Denise was like, hey, do you want to go see the Double Clicks play? And I nearly dropped my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Oh, Denise is great. That was such a fun show. It was a very unique unique event. And listeners, in case you didn't listen to the last episode, I described this in detail, but my, my friend Denise won a Tumblr contest. And so she just offered. She offered on Facebook or something, I think. Oh, really? Okay. Unless she, there was a contest I didn't know. I mean, I have no, I don't. I know. think it was more just like, hey, someone's doing this. Does anyone want to? And Denise was like, yep, I put my hand up. Yeah. And so you guys got to hang out with her one eyed cat yes. and her, <laughs> her other cat. And then about 30 of her nearest and dearest, myself included. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was a great little show. And 
I heard, you played this song about the kilogram. Yes. And I had never heard that one before. Yeah, I think we debuted it there. The The page we've been playing that song off, I remember writing the lyrics on, like, at Denise's place. I always think of that show whenever we play that song. Oh, that's lovely. I'm sure Denise will appreciate that, too. Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay, so let's start from the basics. Whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Kentucky, and then when I was six, I moved to a city outside of Boston called Westford, which is like a very suburban kind of very Massachusetts kind of town. Okay, and I know you have a sister. I do. I do have a sister. Because I'm interviewing her in about 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, good luck with that, by the way. <laughs> so what was the situation like? Were you living sort of the normal suburban life? or? Yeah, when we moved to Boston, I'm, I'm, I've always been just like a very uh, dramatic kid. So when we moved to Boston from Kentucky, I was just immediately heartbroken. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I remember just like writing songs about how I did. I never wanted to move to Boston, just like singing to myself and writing sad like stories on my typewriter and and just being generally like a very self-absorbed bummer, which I guess is why I'm such an amazing artist. I really like to obsess with the things that, that went wrong and like distant relatives that died that I didn't really even know. And I would just obsess over how sad I was that they died and stuff like that. I tried to avoid talking to other kids at recess and really kind of had this identity of the new kid in town in in Westford for a really long time. To be fair, this, the city I lived in, in Boston, outside of Boston is, it's one of those places where people generally live like their entire lives and generations after generations of people are there. So coming in as like a kid with a Southern accent when I was six, I felt like a really big outsider and really embraced that, that identity. I can appreciate that because I mean, I, when I was a kid, I moved around more than once a year for the whole time. So yeah, yeah that, that new kid spot is an easy niche to kind of occupy. Although yeah. my heart kind of swelled a little bit when you said you were you would write stories in your typewriter. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I made my my parents, I don't know if it was like at a yard sale or something, but I really wanted a typewriter and I wanted like a really a, an electric old one. It was giant and it was like impossible to replace the typewriter ribbon cuz that's not a skill anybody had in like 1996 anymore. So I would, yeah, I, I did a lot of like journaling and like basically live blogging my life before there was live blogging, just like, well, I can't hang out right now. I have to write in my journal about what's happening right now and why I can't hang out with you is the fact that I'm journaling, but I'm journaling about how I can't hang out with you because I'm journaling. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, it's the, the Ouroboros of loneliness. Yeah, it was a, a gene. I, I was re- really smart and really getting in my own way for my entire childhood. I, I loved reading and I loved, I had a dog that I really loved like to hang out with and sort of having a lot of imaginary interactions sort of my big thing and then Aubrey and I my sister we didn't get along super well when we were really young we got along and we hung out a lot and we would make little science tv shows on our camera and I think you should ask Aubrey about that because she remembers it better than I do sure but when we moved to Boston we we stopped really getting along so well because we had to spend all this time together we didn't really know anybody else and uh, so I spent a lot of time by myself and I think even if you have the the best of sibling relationships, when you're put into a situation where there's just you and another person, it just tends to invite that sort of picking at one another that siblings are really good at. Yeah. How close are you and Aubrey? Are you a couple of years or? Yeah, two and a half years. It's a bit more than, than me and my sister. And yeah, we would be left alone on long car trips or visiting my mom at her student ministry in Stanley, New Brunswick. Yeah. And no, zero other kids. And yeah. att- attempting to be in each other's space at that level strained our relationship to the point where we would just yeah tear strips off each other <laughs> yeah it's uh 
you're all each other have, which is good, but also at a certain point, it's like, you also are all I have to beat up on, so sorry. (laughs) It's just going to be what happens. I think I really came into my own as a person when I met nerds in, like, middle school and high school, and the internet started existing, and I I got super into Neopets and AOL Instant Messenger and LiveJournal and all of these sort of ways to connect with people when we were at home. So we didn't do a lot of like going out and hanging out with people at parties and and stuff like that. There was like, I just, I was immediately defensive and and got bullied kind of immediately after moving to Boston. So I was like, eh, people, never mind. And then the uh, the internet really kind of solved that problem for me. (laughs) (laughs) Now you mentioned AOL Instant Messenger. I feel like for people of a certain age, potentially our age, Mm -hmm. that... Depending on which messaging platform you were on, you can identify yeah. how old you are. Yeah. And what sort of kid you were. See, whereas I, I was an ICQ teen. Oh, sure. And I, yeah. th- I think it was some TV show actually used the little ICQ uh-oh noise just as a genuine, <laughs> a sort of a, a random alert on someone's phone. Uh-huh. And I swear I started, like I was reading a book and my girlfriend was watching TV and I heard that noise and my head like jerked up. Yeah. And I just, what happened? <laughs> Where? What year is it? But yeah, I can remember AOL Instant Messenger and MSN Messenger coming in a little later. And was it AOL that had the cool skins that you would be like, oh, I can make it look like a comic book where every time someone says something, it would like show a picture of like an anime person saying the line. Yeah. And it would have all these weird like hacky hack skins. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, it was a huge deal like which quotes like song lyrics that you had in your away messages and in your profile and you could you could make your text different fonts and different colors and then your your profile image was basically just like the tiny tiny version of an animated gif and so that could be oh gosh just like an animated picture of a band we would never put ourselves on there which is so funny about twitter now like you're supposed to put your face but back in the day you would just put like well i'm really into they might be giants. So this is a little picture of they might be giants, like animated in like stick figure or something <laughs> like that. It was a great tool for socializing with people you kind of knew in real life, but not really, or even just strangers. Yeah, and it seems like it, like much in the way that has been written about ad nauseum about things like MySpace. Mm-hmm. It was a way to specifically craft how people saw you and how you presented yourself. Yeah, it's very true. I don't know if I've read those think pieces, but it definitely was a way to... I mean, and I think the thing I like about it, and this is just, I haven't been to therapy in months, so this is very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. But the the great thing about internet socialization is that you don't have a body. Like, I just hate human bodies. I just want to be a personality. And and the internet was so good for that, especially in the days when uploading a photo would have taken hours. (laughs) <laughs> and, and it would have come out compressed and all the colors would be wrong. And Yeah. I spent a lot of my late teen years on forums. And yeah, the idea of having mm-hmm. four or five different signatures, you know, one funny, one serious, one that had a bunch of emoji. Yeah. And, and like really working on this idea of, oh, I can't just have a picture that represents me. I have to have a special title, I have to have a special signature, but of course you might be referring, you know, replying to a serious thread, and no one wants to see your joke signature on a serious thread. No, no, So you'd no. better have a serious one that says how deep and, per- and emotional you are. Yeah, yeah, put some, some good, like, Evanescence lyrics or something like that, whatever <laughs> Evanescence was in the 90s. <laughs> and I, I recently read Station Eleven, which is a very interesting book. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And at one point, they were, it's, it's a and it was sort of a similar to The Stand in that it's an apocalypse book and it's kind of what happens during and what happens after. At one point, there's uh, one of the characters makes a list of no more this, no more that. And it really serves to underline what's missing. 
and right at the end, it's no more avatars. Oh. And it's like, while that could be seen as a shallow, oh, dirt, you know, no one can pick the perfect selfie to show what they look like. What it also means is, like we were saying, there's no way to represent yourself apart from yourself. Yeah. And how strange that would be to people who, you know, grew up from 1993 to 2016. Yeah. No, for sure. I, I love the way that you can create your image using the internet. It's really nice. <laughs> I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of having my mind in control of how people perceive me instead of all of the IRL signifiers that we are culturally ingrained to believe mean certain things. Yeah. And yeah. I was going to say, it's like, that's, that's a weird segue. Speaking of sure. that thing we just said, you mentioned they might be giants. Oh, big time. I love They Might Be Giants so much. I got into They Might Be Giants. Basically, I joined the high school marching band when I was in eighth grade because the high school marching band kids seem like the coolest people in the world. (laughs) And this is part of a pattern of while always fighting with Aubrey, I always really idolized her and her friends. And a lot of them were in the marching band. And I always just really wanted to hang out with them and anyone that she thought was cool. I was like, well, I could be like them and then maybe we'd be friends or something. And so when I joined joined the marching band I played the cymbals which basically means you are a glorified cymbal stand for a drummer <laughs> but I was super into it and they those guys who was it was mostly basically a bunch of boy scouts in the drum line really loved they might be giants and listened to it all the time and would sing it sing their songs on the marching band bus it was for them kind of an oral tradition of like they would sing those songs together I guess on boy scout troops like trips for me it was okay this is a cool band I'm now going to buy all of their albums, listen to them all the time, go to all their concerts, find the three photos of them that exist on the internet and blow them up and put them on my wall. And just like their music was amazing to me because it was funny and clever and weird and sort of not trying to be anything else. It really sort of changed it, it became my identity, basically. You worshipped at the cult of the Johns. Yes, them Johns. There was a point in high school where I was very proud of myself that every poster in my room, in my bedroom, was of someone named John. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll duck back to the band thing for a moment. Because yeah, sure. Because I, I learned how to play the drums at an early age because my dad played drums when he was a teenager. And then promptly projected that onto me from a very young age. There's a picture of me sitting in front of two little kid-sized metal folding chairs and having piled up boxes, and I'm hitting them with sticks like drums. Oh. And yeah, I had a pair of drumsticks in my room before I knew what to do with them. And so when I got to high school, I was like, all right, I'm going to be in the band. I want to play the drums. And they went, oh, no one's allowed to play the drums unless you play an instrument for six months. Oh. So my dad asked around to our family friends and basically said, all right, who has what instrument? And uh, our friend Chris had a very battered old alto sax from when he was a teenager. (sighs) Oh, that's an easy one. (laughs) And gave it to me. And oh my God, I hated the saxophone. I hated it so much. (laughs) Yeah, it's not what you wanted. Because it's like, I I didn't, and this is, again, sounds terrible to say it out loud. I didn't, I never learned how to tongue the notes. Yeah. And my band teacher was not a terribly attentive band teacher, so I was slurring my way through, like, you know, Fallbrook March or whatever and just suffering. Yeah. And eventually I was given the baritone sax parts because they were easier to play. Yeah. There were lots of sustained notes, lots of low notes, and I didn't have to, like, do anything that involved a solo until finally I could play the drums. So, yes, as a fellow percussionist, I salute you. Yeah, that's awesome. The first instrument I played was violin. 
Ooh. Um, I played violin for 10 years. Okay. From when I was three till when I was 13. Oh, wow. So you were the kid prodigy violin. Then. Yeah. Well, in a way, in that I played the violin, not in the way where, like, I was good at it at all. Because <laughs> I didn't really, like, practicing. I remember being very angry that my parents wouldn't let me do my homework until I had practiced my violin. You're like, how is this fair? <laughs> this isn't, I just want to read, please. Our dad is a musician. We had a very, like, musical family. And it's very important if you want to be a professional musician, especially like a symphonic instrument, you have to start when you're super young. Basically, if you don't start playing violin when you're six, you're never going to be in a symphony orchestra. That's just not going to happen. So that was a, a big part of my childhood. And then as soon as I joined like an orchestra at school and realized I was just as bad as everybody who had never had to be a toddler playing a violin, <laughs> I was like, uh, screw this. I'm, um, <laughs> why would I do this? Like, I'm just picturing this, just like, kid Angel just, like, throwing down her bow and being like, this is garbage. Yeah, yeah it's nonsense. Well, and I guess I could have practiced, I could have enjoyed it, but I, it wasn't something that my heart was in. And the great part about being me, having that experience, um, and then starting to play drums is that I was the only drummer in high school orchestra band and marching band that knew how to read music. Ah. <laughs> Because I had learned that basically when I was learning to read. For anyone who hasn't seen sheet music for drums, it's basically every note just corresponds to a bit of the of the drum kit. Yeah. So it's far, far I imagine compared to violin, extremely simplified. It is very simple. And if you're in like a symphonic band or something, it's mostly just like 30, 40 measures of rest. And then you get to hit the timpani and then you go back to sleep for the rest of the song. And boom. There <laughs> you go. Did it. But if you mess it up, man, it's the worst. You, you mentioned you know, your friends who had learned the, the songs at scout camp. Yeah. My mom was a camp director for a couple of summers yeah. when I was a kid at a United Church camp. Sure. Camp Woodstock in New Brunswick. And the nice thing was that I got to spend the entire summer at camp and go through what were essentially four two-week camps throughout the summer. Nice. And that was great for a kid who liked to show off. Oh, sure. But then, of course, depending on the counselors you would get different songs. Oh. It took me until I was 16 to realize that, you know, when I was eight, I had learned all the words to extremes more than words. (laughs) Without knowing. Oh, this isn't just a camp song. This is like somebody recorded this. It it was literally, like, I would talk to my sister and we would sing that song from camp. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Wow. Coming back to They Might Be Giants. Always. There was, they were one of those bands where I had knowledge of them without actually having knowledge of them. In that, mm-hmm. for example, I had watched lots of Tiny Toon Adventures, and so I knew Istanbul, not Constantinople. Yeah. But I just knew it as this silly song from a TV show. Right. And it took me years later looking at my friend Stephanie's blog spot, where she had named it Four of Two. Uh-huh. I originally thought that was, it was a, a homeschooling blog. She was talking about homeschooling her two daughters. And I thought, okay, they're a family of four, and there's two kids, and there's also two parents, so four of two. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and I finally asked her, like, hey, so what did you name it that? And she went, oh, it's this song. And I took myself to LimeWire, and I downloaded... Yes. Oh, big time. Uh, I downloaded Lucky Ball and Chain, and Four of Two, and Istanbul, not Constantinople, and a misnamed version of 88 Lines About 44 Women. <laughs> Which is not by They Might Be Giants. No, no, no. That's, yeah, that's, those are the days when you could just get, like, music just randomly that you would assume was one by one band and wasn't by, yeah. wasn't by them at all. Many things attributed to Weird Al, many things attributed to Ray Stevens when they were just, you know, musicians in their upstairs bedroom recording a yes. terribly offensive song. 
Oh my gosh. And Weird Al has actually talked about about that a little bit. I've, I've read a bunch of interviews because I was a big Weird Al fan, but also in the age of right in that middle spot where I would never go to a store to buy music because I just was like, well, it's on the internet and I'm 14 or whatever. I would just download anything that was labeled Weird Al. And he has talked about like, there are some really offensive stuff that people think was me. It's not me. It's just <laughs> the internet. People f- put all the comedy songs in, on the internet up as Weird Al stuff. And... Some of it's real bad. (laughs) (laughs) My downloading of MP3s got to the point where I think it had been like two years since I had actually gone out and purchased a CD. Yeah. Because when you don't have a ton of money, the idea that, oh, you can just pluck music from the air and have an incredibly deeply organized real jukebox program Mm -hmm. where you go through and like add album artwork, like tiny little thumbnails and make sure... (laughs) Yeah, spend hours meticulously organizing that stuff. Yeah, and and I think that the first CD I bought, it was in my first year of university, so it would have been 2001. I went and bought the Titan AE soundtrack because mm-hmm. my friend Derek loaned me that VHS, and I played it, and I really liked the movie. And then the the VCR ate the tape and spat it out oh, in no. pieces, and he had just bought it the day before. So I had to do that sitcom thing where I had to, because I was meant to bring it back to him when I saw him in class that day. So I had to run down to the HMV as it opened and buy a $24 VHS of Titan AE to return it to him. Jeez. But somehow this did not affect me, and I remember thinking, it's like, oh yeah, I want that Electracy song. I want that lit song at the beginning about how he's over his head. And I'm like, this this is such good music for this incredibly groundbreaking movie that yeah. <laughs> literally no one talks about anymore. Changed the world. It changed the world. You don't talk about it every day? What do you talk? In, in weird. my local Titan AE book club. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for sure. They Might Be Giants was a band that I actually absorbed via CDs. It was probably the only band that I've ever done that with. But I I bought every CD and listened to albums like albums when I wasn't doing that. Like, people weren't doing that anymore. They were just iTunesing or Napstering stuff. So I I know all of their songs. (laughs) And I would go to their shows when my friends who were said they were They Might Be Giants fans wouldn't go to their shows. I I was really really into them as artists. I wanted to ask, because I haven't seen any, apart from that one episode of Radiolab they did, which was a very different experience, I haven't seen any videos or or things of their live show. So what was their live show like? It's really great. They have, you know, the band of Dan's. All of the people in their band were named Dan, not anymore. (laughs) Their drummer's name Marty now. But the first show I saw them with, it was actually an 18 plus show. I went with my dad and I was 16. I wore like a college sweatshirt. It was like, now I look 18, whatever. But we actually, we got in because they were like trying to get extras for a music video at the venue beforehand. It wasn't a They Might Be Giants video, just somebody else. And so we went there to like stand in the background and then they snuck us to the front of the line after we'd done that like thank you for doing that we needed that help here please get be the first people into this venue um and didn't get carded because we kind of skipped the line i was like yes i got in i was so nervous it's the perfect crime although my dad was like they would have let me in probably whatever we stood right next to the stage and they just they have such energy like there's an accordion and an electric guitar that he plays left-handed and they they really put on a show they do like kind of little skits or like little sketches they i've seen them do puppets and they've done a bit where they call their mom like john flansberg <laughs> pretends to be mama they might be giants and they call her for mother's day and they they do all kinds of stuff like that they do like really cool new versions of the songs that they have to play like istanbul and particle man they kind of do fun things with that and there's all there was a confetti can 
Shannon, I remember, at the first show <laughs> that I saw them at. Because I collected the confetti and put it in a plastic bag with my ticket stub and put it up on my bulletin board. I, I'm pretty sure I still have it. Oh, Angela. <laughs> yeah. It was, it's a, it was a beautiful moment. And I knew all the words. And then at the end, they... They did like an improvised like thank you song, like pointing out specific people in the crowd. And that on that tour, they were recording the shows. So I bought the recording of that show and I listened to it. And one of my friends was there um, and was thanked in that song. And I, I was like, I'll never forget it. It was a great, it was a great moment. <laughs> yeah, there is that special thing about a, a live show where, I mean, for the cheap versions, it are the one where it's like we'll say the name of the place that we're at yeah you know great big sea changing it from from toronto to oh we're in fredericton now and everyone going wow oh my god say some more yeah. places but then there's also that vibe and there's a, a stand-up comedian named adam hills and he would always go and talk to the crowd but not in a i'm gonna pick on you i'm gonna make fun of your hat kind of way yeah he would just ask people about themselves yeah and that bit got longer and longer in his shows to the point where he did an entire tour where he is just he's just called it a mess around he's like look i'm just gonna go i'm gonna talk to the audience and from that we are going to find what's funny and what's great about these people that's awesome and on the strength of that because the thing is he then went and said all right well i'm going to like you know sign up at the front door and if you want you'll be emailed like a podcast recording of this show nice this show will never be repeated, and the show will only go out to those people who were here and signed up on the day. And I'm like, how good is that for an intention-getting show? For it's like, because everyone will download that to go. I remember that bit. He asked me that question. I was the only one who knew the answer to this thing. And yeah, it's that real personal identification. So the idea of having, you know, the show where you the thank you song your friend was thanked on that yeah that's so great yeah it's amazing they do they did a, a tour also where they they wrote songs for the venues that called venue songs <laughs> they recorded the like an album and then made a video of it that was hosted by the character the deranged millionaire <laughs> it was played by john hodgman who later used that character on like the daily show and his own books and stuff that's how i discovered john hodgman was through the weird performance he did in a they might be giants dvd (laughs) yeah there's something about when you have a band and i talked about this with former guest megan nielsen when she talked about Uh my chemical romance it's like when you when you're a teenager and you're really into a particular thing be it an actor or a musician or a sports star and they just casually mention something that they're into Mm -hmm. and you just fall upon that thing oh big time it's it's the power of the recommendation oh it was it was such a big part of and it still is like anything like that I like now can be traced back to that. Like I found John Hodgman through They Might Be Giants. I found Jonathan Colton through John Hodgman and then like the whole world that we're in now of nerd comedy and music that like we exist in and write in and perform in like people that we know. We all all came from that fandom that I started in in middle school. Just to talk on that for a moment. Yeah. I recently did a little vacation in the states where i went to i went to st louis for a friend's wedding and then went to chicago and then boston and then new york over like two weeks just had a had a blast had a great time and when i was in like because i'm (laughs) because i make bad decisions whenever i go on trips i always end up buying books and comic books because every those things are so expensive in australia and there's so much of a range especially in like new comics that just came out like the idea of mm-hmm. buying a floppy issue for three bucks instead of, you know, $12. Yeah. 
here in Australia Gosh. is just like I, I can grab a, a random assortment of stuff and try out new things. Yeah. And when I was in Boston, I went to one of the markets. They had a pop-up store for one of the comic book shops. Oh, nice. I managed to get uh, a complete run of the new Mockingbird series. Oh, hey. And so last month, I was sitting at home, you know, going through all the books that I had picked up overseas on a Saturday and opened a Mockingbird issue. And hey, it's that's cool. It's set on the Joko cruise. And yeah. wait a minute, I recognize those yeah. people. Yeah, we're official Marvel canon. Like we've signed stuff. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. And it's not just, oh, hey, you're in the background someplace. No, we're <laughs> named and Aubrey's a murder suspect. <laughs> it's so great. The writer of that series, Chelsea Kane, lives in Portland. She writes, she's a New York Times bestselling author of thrillers. And we've met her, we met her doing an NPR show. And her daughter's a big Double Clicks fan, who she's an incredible girl. Like, I want to be her when I grow up. But the, the whole family is really great. And we were super honored that she wanted us to be in her Marvel comic. It's amazing. It's really cool. Not only are you in Mockingbird, but you're dressed as Captain Marvel and Dazzler. And that's amazing. Yes. And you get to do a photon blast and a light ray. <laughs> yes, it's great. I actually was just talking about this with my friend the other day. We're going on the Joko cruise in two weeks, and we had talked about trying to get those costumes because Aubrey has that wig. Somebody offered me a Captain Marvel cosplay to borrow, but she I don't think it's going to fit. So uh, it would be it'd be really cool to, to be able to cosplay as ourselves, as Marvel characters. This sounds really great. Yeah. It's a weird life. I'm very thankful for it. <laughs> it's something that... Do you listen to Jay and Miles explain the X-Men? Not frequently. I have. I know, the, I know yeah. Jay. Because Jay, Jay and Miles uh, were put into a comic book. I think it, I think it was Chris Sims put them into X-Men 92, but they were sort that's of... That's Oh, of course. Yeah, because... They should. <laughs> because that, that is a sentence that makes the most sense. And yeah. they were sort of lab technicians. Uh-huh. And they've talked about, just like, we could go and cosplay as ourselves in that those two panels where we get blown up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that's living the that's dream. Great. To like be able to cosplay as yourself and just be like, hey, I'm me. I am entirely panel accurate. I think you'll find. Yeah. <laughs> you will find that everything about me is exactly as the comic. Well, the best part is that we also could just wear our normal clothes because Aubrey's like wearing her banana costume in the comic. So it's it's great. <laughs> I'd just like to I point could... out that you've just referred to a banana costume as normal clothes. Yeah. No, it's just like normal everyday stuff, right? <laughs> and the shark I costume. I mean, she has worn it every day that I've seen her for the past couple of weeks. So I don't know. Yeah. So, so when did the costume aspect come into your performances and your kind of online life oh gosh i don't know that's mo- that's mostly an aubrey thing so i i would be curious to hear what she has to say about it my costume is wearing a dress on stage <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when i when i play the character of angela from the double clicks it's mostly i just get femmed up which may change because <laughs> i realize i don't have to do that anymore but she's got the banana costume and and all of that together and it's it makes her very very happy and i don't I don't know exactly what she would say about that, but I enjoy how happy she gets. Having seen you guys live and following you both on Twitter, when Aubrey is happy, it kind of lights up the room. So, yes. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, she's got a lot of energy and enthusiasm when she she cares to share it with us. So it's nice. And just coming back to They Might Be Giants, like just thinking through your discography, or rather the dinosaur USB that I bought at your show. Yes. You can definitely see, like, I don't know, I, I presume you would cite them as an influence, but there is a very strong They Might Be Giants vibe. Oh, big time. I kind of wanted to ask, because you your music is very much, like, I would say I could play your songs for just about anyone. Like They're very, very inclusive, and you guys don't work blue, 
and they're they're funny. <laughs> we, we have <laughs> you have once in a while, I suppose. Yeah, but m- the majority of your recorded music is pretty much all ages appropriate. Yeah, like coming from like, did you want to talk a little bit, little bit about that? Like coming from a They Might Be Giants five, who you know released actual children's music, but for the most part. It's yeah. very inclusive. So, do you feel that was a direct correlation? I mean, probably. Yeah. I mean, we. Oh gosh, we we basically we weren't intending, and we have never been intending to like write kids music. Mm-hmm. But we both love kids music. When we were kids, even like teens and later, there was a radio show called The Playground on a college radio station in Boston that we would listen to every weekend. And it's basically just comedy music that doesn't make you feel bad is basically what kids music is. Mm -hmm. And I love it. And I love positivity and jokes and just using a song to express words instead of just using music to be beautiful music, which is awesome, but I'm not good at. So I'm not as interested in it. And so we've always wanted our songs to be very lyric focused, to be kind of pretty literal. Like this is what I want to talk about. I'm just going to talk about this. Like, I like dinosaurs. Let's talk about dinosaurs. I want you to feel good about yourself. Let's just say the words, be yourself. And I think that is accessible to kids and everyone to not have a lot of obscurity in what you're trying to say. And also just the topics of like dinosaurs and cats and space are things that kids like. And I think grownups like too, but are told that we're not supposed to. (laughs) And so it does become accessible for kids. And I love that feeling because I think the strongest fandoms you develop are when you're kids. So it means a whole lot to me when there's kids who like our music. It feels good. And we've tried to keep our music accessible to families. Our first album has a few swears on it, but after that, we tried to cut it back a little bit so that we could play shows where kids could come. I think that does come from like, I still love the music I loved as a kid. I love the Beatles. I love They Might Be Giants. I love the Monkees. And I think that that's important. And I don't think you need to stop liking things just because you liked them when you were a kid. Absolutely. I mean, hey, I formed an entire podcast around it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I need to really sell you on this. So I'll keep... No. I mean, They Might Be Giants have separate kids' albums and adults' albums, which if we had, like, the energy they have of the amount of output is probably something we would do, too. They also do kids' shows and adult shows, which is awesome because there's definitely stuff we want to cover and our next album is a lot of this of things that like they're not gross or like adult topics but they're serious stuff that maybe isn't like fun music that will appeal to children necessarily Mm -hmm. and it would be nice to be able to do both kinds of things at once which we basically do we just we do whatever we want and hopefully people will stick around (laughs) yeah and it's funny that you mentioned the sort of the, the literal literality literalness mm-hmm. I don't know what the word is yeah the fact that your songs are, are, are extremely straightforward mm-hmm. and something I really appreciate because I mean it's that that old saw that you know using po- prose to talk about poetry you're always going to lose something in the translation I mean how long was you know people writing theses theses I'm not good with plurals today <laughs> writing theses about what blackbird means based upon its lyrics and then in like 2005 Paul McCartney's like no it's about civil rights and that collapses the waveform and everybody goes oh so all that is now wrong and that one interpretation is right dang but the idea of something like nothing to prove or something like Demetrodon and just being so incredibly just like open and straightforward yeah this is what you're feeling this is what you might do and I really like that. And coming back to They Might Be Giants, mm-hmm. it's something like I could probably sit and analyze four of two. But really, it's yeah. about someone standing by a clock which has stopped time for him and everything else advances to the point where he's in the future with giant metal bugs yeah. and has a giant beard and it's still the same time. That's all you get. 
It's like the, it doesn't need to be a yeah. deep reading. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of the Amy Jones songs do have like deeper meanings to it, or they're like, what is? I don't know what this is about necessarily. But I think there's both ways are right. Like something could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and you can be not really sure. And they might be giants don't super talk about like the meanings behind their songs that much or you can have a song like the songs that we write and amanda palmer and kimya dawson write where you're talking very specifically about your own experience but people can still find something to relate to in that to their own lives even if it's not so vague that they have to project into it i guess i think both ways are right two things can be true multiple things can be good (laughs) (laughs) so i'm gonna take a slight pivot in this conversation. I'm excited. Because part of the the joy of this podcast has been people bringing topics to me. Like, one part of it is just, hey, you know, I remember this thing too. You know? Yeah. Mention ICQ to me, and I'm sure I could bring up all kinds of things. And really, Mm -hmm. it was dumb that every message created a new window. (laughs) There were options for that in AOL. I'm just saying. (laughs) Oh, good. But then what really gets my attention is when someone mentions something that I have absolutely zero frame of reference to. I had a very good conversation with Catherine Van Arendonk about Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman and how important that was to her. So (laughs) on your list of things that you kind of raise as potential topics, I want to ask you, I'm going to get comfy. I'm going to lean back a little bit. Yeah. Tell me about American Girl dolls. Oh, I'm so excited. So do you, do you know anything about American Girl dolls? Or are you... I managed to, like, even though I spent, like, the first 20 years of my life in North America, in Canada. Yeah. I had managed to never hear of them until they became, like, you know, punchline on something like 30 Rock or an answer on Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, that's the entirety of my experience. Sure. Well, the American Girl dolls, I, and I stopped paying attention at some point after my childhood. So I know things have evolved since then. But they were a set of dolls developed by a company called The Pleasant Company. (laughs) And for some reason, just the American Girl doll catalog would show up in your house at a certain age. It's like how you automatically in the US like are entered into the AARP when you turn 50. Or, or it's just like, it's just life. You get an American Girl Dog catalog, especially if you were specifically a kid like me of my economic status and race and religious background. That's just, we had this. There were basically like eight different dolls. They're all from different eras of US history and they have books that go with them. So there's like the really early immigrant from Sweden doll named Kirsten. And there's the, the 1920s depression doll named Kit. And there's the girl I had who was the World War II doll named Molly. Basically, they have these books and you learn about their lives and their interaction with the the American history as I think they were all the same age, like eight or 12. But really, the whole point was that they're trying to sell you an 18-inch porcelain doll and all of her accessories. So she has a bed. She has food. She has, like, you ha- You can act out all of her stories through all of this expensive doll furniture that you can <laughs> buy and doll clothes. I remember when I was a kid, they were $81, which was just more money than I could ever imagine owning something that... Oh, wow. That's, that's a huge sum. A princely sum. <laughs> Absolutely. But it was, it was one of those things that a lot of my friends had an American Girl doll. And when I think, I think I turned, I want to say 10 or 12, I was like told by my family that my aunt would buy me an American Girl doll and I had to choose which one I wanted. 
My sister had Kirsten, who is the Swedish doll. So in my family is Swedish, and we did a lot of the traditions that Kirsten did in her book. She was the, the Swedish immigrant doll. See, my first thought is to go, oh, wow, saving on accessories. Good idea, because you've already got the stuff. Yeah, well, absolutely not. I'm not going to have the same doll as my sister. Absolutely ridiculous. And so I remember painstakingly looking through the book and trying to decide which doll I wanted, not necessarily just based on who I related to, because I don't think I really related to any of them. I remember thinking like, well, Molly comes with glasses. For the same price, you get an American Girl doll with an outfit and glasses. I mean, that seems like a bargain. <laughs> also, her hair in canon is always, always braided into two pigtails. And I was like, that's easy maintenance. I can handle that because I don't like hair. It's an incredibly practical decision. Yeah, no, this is... And I remember so clearly all of these thoughts and I was like, well, and I like, I'd go through the catalog and be like, well, I don't like really Molly's bed, but I do like her clothes more than I like, like Samantha's clothes. I think Molly had more pants in in her outfits because she worked in the Victory Garden and stuff like that. She had some outdoorsy jobs. And so, yeah, so I got, I requested Molly and I got Molly and I gave Molly away two years ago. (laughs) Um, She was a huge part of my life for like ever. I didn't get a lot of like official American Girl accessories because those were expensive. But I remember I got like a trunk for her from like an antique shop for $20 at one point. And that was a huge deal. And I would get just like random, like off-brand American Girl doll accessories. And, And she just, she was not the Molly from the books, but she was like basically my imaginary friend and was in my room for pretty much my entire childhood until I left for college. She just, she to me was like, was so real, like to the point where, you know, your dog or whatever doesn't know what the words you're saying to Mm -hmm. the dog, but you're not going to be mean to the dog, even just in words, because that feels wrong. Molly definitely felt like a real person to me. And I imbued so much importance. I think just like both like myself and my childhood self into her that it was it was very important that's a weird part of my life (laughs) that's true no i'm I'm looking at the the wikipedia now because i wanted to be sure yes yeah and the thing is you're you're right molly molly has this look that is unlike the others yeah and she does sort of stand out i mean she's got a an argyle sweater yeah and like a peter pan collar Mm -hmm. and glasses and that split down the middle laura ingles braid yeah and yeah it's really cool She's got more of like a casual kind of almost butch vibe than the rest of the dolls, I think, which I, I think I related to. She's she's uh, she's cool. She's got problems, you know, <laughs> the wars going on, stuff like that. <laughs> it was such a weird cultural thing. And I, it's like when you're a kid with They Might Be Giants, like you were saying, like the power of the recommendation and the American Girl doll thing, like you're so susceptible to advertising and any cultural influence you're given as a kid that I think that it just had such a huge effect on me and became so important. And I think a lot of people too, like there's a there's American Girl doll cafes. Oh, wow. Still now and stores that you can go into and you can bring your doll and they will have a special chair at the at the, the tea time with like you sit next to your doll and you both get food, <laughs> which is weird. And there's, you can get dolls now that like look like you, you can design a doll and it's it's been a big deal. And I, but I, I remember pouring over those catalogs constantly and being up on the latest news and I don't think I ever discussed it with anybody oh wow (laughs) it's just like but I'm sure and now like listening to podcasts and being in the internet world I know I can I know that a lot of other people did the same thing which is cool that the internet exists so we know that even when we were alone we were all together yeah there's that special feeling of there's this thing that I thought only I knew 
and I thought that only I did. Mm -hmm. When in fact, no, lots and lots of other people also felt they were the only one who did that thing and the only one who knew that thing. Exactly. And so you get that frantic arms flapping. Yes, this thing. We did it. We did it. My friend uh, Molly Lewis, who's a ukulele singer-songwriter, had basically the same experience I did with a lot of the like music and comedians. And I'm pretty sure she also had the Molly American Girl doll, since her name is Molly. I was say, yeah. like, and we met when I was like mm, 23. And it was just like this amazing experience of like, oh my God, what if I had known you? <laughs> like, <laughs> What kind of person would I be if I knew somebody else who liked the same stuff and had the same experiences? It's weird. It's weird, but good. Yeah, very good. Okay, so I am mindful of time, so we should probably start wrapping up. Oh, okay. Angela, I'm going to give you lots of time for this segment because you have lots and lots of stuff on the go. Now, normally I would just be like, you know, tell me where I'd find you on the internet, but there is big stuff happening on Planet DoubleClick, so I'm going to give you free reign to talk about whatever you want. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's a real exciting time. We are in the midst of a Kickstarter for our new album, which is called Love Problems. We want to make this incredible album, which is songs about being alone and being with other people and the problems that come from love and gender and all of these things. It's going to be a really amazing album. The Kickstarter is going well. We're trying to get 2,000 backers, and at that level, we will be making a musical uh, on the internet (laughs) called President Snakes. (laughs) So please check it out and back it. Even if you just give us a dollar or like $10 gets you the album. We'd love to have more people involved because we want to make lots of amazing stuff. You can also check out new videos, including one called Women Know Math, which is a song from that forthcoming album. The song is about how being told what to do to be a good woman is very frustrating. And the video is made by 50 different women and non-binary artists from around the world. You can find that at youtube.com slash the double clicks. And you can find the Kickstarter by searching for the double clicks or just going to the double clicks and I don't know I'm on Twitter at Angela M. Weber I'm pretty hilarious and great you can also find me at AngelaMWeber.com I'm writing occasional essays usually about depression or bisexuality or being a creative person that's probably a fine start what about Fiasco talk about Fiasco yeah I've got I've got a podcast called Gosh Darn Fiasco in which I play the RPG Fiasco with improvisers people from the games community and other funny friends it's super fun if you like podcasts I think you will enjoy it. We basically just make up a new story every episode and you can just jump in knowing nothing about RPGs and you will learn a very strange tale. <laughs> and it's it's a it's a really grand time. Well, Angela, I'm so happy that we got to do this because this is this yes. is one of the you guys were actually one of the very first emails that I sent before I even had a name yes. for the show. I said, yes. you know, wouldn't it be great? Like I went down my list. I'm like, wouldn't it be great if I could get Chris Sims on the show? Wouldn't it be great if I could get the double clicks on the show? Wouldn't it be great if, and just ran down this list of people and in a moment of like sort of crazed bravery, I just went, I'm just going to email all these people. <laughs> well, your email uh, was left unread in my <laughs> inbox for three years until I finally got somebody to schedule my podcast interviews for me. So thank you so much for still emailing us back. <laughs> Wonderful. And I am also yeah. I am also a Kickstarter backer. So everyone, please go to the Kickstarter. They have been funded, but there is lots of new things being added on the regular, like really amazing new stuff. Yeah, it's so good. Just being like, hey, if we get to this, we'll do this thing. And it's just like, yeah. like every update I get, I'm like, oh, really? Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's, we've got big plans, and we love to just get as many people involved as possible. So check it out. Excellent. All right, oh, Angela, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. The Fuse.
Thank you very much to Angela M. Weber for her time. For her signature cocktail, Angela recommended something with gin or tequila, and I jumped at the chance to make something with tequila in it, because a lot of people are not fans, possibly due to some terrible, terrible decisions made in their youth. And so I present the exquisite dead guy. In a cocktail shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of Reposado tequila, two ounces of orange juice or tangerine juice if you can get it, one ounce of sweet and sour, which is made by combining one cup of sugar, one cup of water, three quarters of a cup of lemon juice, and three quarters of a cup of lime juice in a pot, bringing to a boil and then chilling, and one ounce of Cointreau. Shake vigorously to combine until the outside of the vessel frosts over. Strain into a double old-fashioned glass that you've already chilled, and if you want to be fancy, Use a wedge of orange or lime to moisten the edge of the glass and dip it into some salt, maybe with a little bit of lemon zest cut in. Now we're talking. Whether you're in a concrete shrine, apartment four, Brooklyn, Charleston, or Cabbage Town, this drink will provide you an oasis of hooch. Although afterwards, you may not know if you're Anna Ng, Doris Cunningham, Dr. Worm, or Dan Hickey's actual drums. Enjoy! The voice describes the scene as a lizard stalks a helpless creature. is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you want to be a guest on The Math of You, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you'd like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash There you'll find tiers of rewards starting at just a dollar a month. But you can go as much as you want. You can go a million. I would really be impressed if you went a million. I'm just saying. You can get early access to episodes, physical mail, and I would really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support in a non-monetary way, you can head on over to iTunes at the country of your choice and leave a nice five-star rating and maybe even a review. If you leave a review, I'll even read it out on the show and give you a little shout-out. Won't that be nice? Also, if you like the music on the show, I have a Spotify playlist that I update each and every week with the music used on the show. It's bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word. And you can listen to songs like this one. 
It's Cindy Alexander's cover of Tom Petty's American Girl. I couldn't really resist the pun. Next week, it's part two of my Double Clicks extravaganza. I'll be talking to Aubrey, the other half of the Double Clicks, about 1965's Rubber Soul by a little band you might have heard of called The Beatles. Join me, won't you? I drove my partner to work this morning um, because it's terrible and rainy in Portland right now, and uh, he has to bike, which makes me feel bad. So <laughs> I was like, "I'll drive you," and I have to bike off anyway. And then I've been uh, I've been working on editing a music video. So we have a record label called Double Clicks Records, and my friend Lucia Fasano is on that label, and we shot a video for her yesterday, which was really awesome. Um, and so I've been editing that and making some more Kickstarter gifts as we reach more goals. Oh, cool. Just a fun job. I have a cool job. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of storm did you have in Sydney? Oh, well, we just had this out of nowhere because we've been having really, really hot weather. Mm-hmm. Like we had, for a week, we had regular 105 degree days. Wow. And, like, you know, people were putting out heat warnings and stuff and saying that, you know, people at work were like, don't go to your cars on your lunch break. If you do, bring an umbrella, bring water, like all that stuff. Wow. So, yeah, and then after that, it was, like, when that breaks, we get this crazy thunderstorm with lightning and, like, flooding and there's, like, buckets of rain. And where I work, it's in the north of Sydney, and I work up on the sixth floor. Yeah. So you can see, like, the clouds rolling in, and it looks, like, ominous, like, end-of-days stuff. Yeah. I feel like Australia has a good apocalyptic just kind of vibe all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at any, in any way, at any time. <laughs> yeah, totally. I guessed it on someone's podcast a couple of weeks ago, and actually, I'm sorry, it was last week. And, like, I was calling, one person was in Canada, was in BC, and so they were under, like, a glacier being dumped on them from the skies. Yeah. And the other person was in Oakland. And so they were having, like, the worst rain in 100 years. Wow. And I was sitting here, and it was, you know, 45 degrees Celsius and 106 Fahrenheit. Oh and I'm like, we're all calling from a different apocalypse. This is great. It's <laughs> amazing. It seems like you have a really great podcast community that you're a part of. All of these different people. I'm just looking yeah. through your interviews and stuff. That's awesome. Well, it's, it's, it's weird. I've actually managed to get them by dint of asking them sure. and and also at least for the most part just having a couple of Twitter conversations behind me like I got Margaret Wilson for my first ever episode and I was like super <laughs> nervous to ask yeah but we would always have been friends at that point for a little while and I, she's just like uh yeah sure dude I'll do your podcast no problem yeah and I'm like I don't, I don't think you understand how big of a deal it was that you just said yes <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> I mean, if you're a professional, like, whatever, it's, it's a very rare task to actually have somebody who seems like they know what they're doing and respect your time to invite you on a podcast, so. Oh, that's nice. Why not? And, and yeah, it's just something, like, I always, like, get, get a little bit nervous when I'm just asking people, especially if it's, like, over Twitter or something. Yeah. Where it's, like, the only way I know you is through Twitter. And to say, hey, is, you know, is it all right if I just send you a DM, us who have never con- conversed in DM before, I'm not just going to slide into your DMs being like, hi, I do a show. Do you want to be a star? (laughs) I have good news. Trust me. (laughs) 
And then it's like, so I'm like, all right, well, you know, is it okay if I DM you? Yeah, all right. Is it all right, you know, would you be interested in coming on my podcast? Have a listen, see what you think. And a lot of people would just be like, yeah, sure, I'll listen. Send me an email. You send an email and you hear nothing. Yeah. And so it's like, I'm very happy whenever anyone comes back and just goes, yeah, cool. I had a listen. I would really like to do this. You know, like you did. Yeah. No, yeah. We had like piled up like 20 podcast invites. It's like, I definitely want to do these, but I have no time to like do the back and forth scheduling thing. So Mm -hmm. now that we have a person who can do that, I can be on podcasts again. It's great. An exceptionally organized person, by the way. No, she's great. (laughs) She's so good. I'm very excited. Yeah. Every person needs a person. Yeah. We all need somebody. That's the world, right? Yeah. And I mean, even even me, who, when I started this podcast, like, scheduled out hourly blocks on every weekend over a three-month period, over three time zones, mm-hmm. just to be like, hey, everyone, I'm sending you this spreadsheet that I made. Yeah. <laughs> everyone look at it and book out some time. And most people looked at it and went, that's complicated. What about Saturday? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, cool. Do the thing. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to help. I made a system. <laughs> if you just look at the tabs, if you look at the tabs, <laughs> you're you're in tab two, slot three. God, we, we worked on this. I do spreadsheet tabs for myself. I do not do them for other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, I walk past the uh, the bedroom where my pregnant girlfriend is sleeping and cuddling her dachshund. Oh. And making noises, and I'm just like, shh, shh, I'm still recording. And she's like, but he's such a good dog. Oh, okay. <laughs> they're good dogs, Brent. And he is a good dog. <laughs> this this dog actually lost a tooth oh. yesterday. <laughs> His middle bottom tooth. So now, and it just fell out. And we took him to the vet to make sure he was okay. But it... <laughs> It's just a little gap in his smile. And so he'll be looking at you, and I'm like, oh, you're so derpy now. Oh, poor baby. It's like, um, I also have a one-eyed cat. And there you go. Three three months after we got him, we had to get, he had to have his eye out. Mm-hmm. And it spoiled his symmetry, but it's because they had to close his eye, everything on that side is pulled up slightly, so the whole thing, like, he has permanent DreamWorks face. Oh. 